Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. through now how Christ has brought us into God's triune peace through his substitutionary atoning death and his physical real resurrection. We understand and we've been talking about that this peace that we've been given is not threatened, nor is it vulnerable to us losing it by something we do. However, we also know that the peace of God has been collectively given to us, a body of Christ, a local body. We are a display of this bond of peace. And Paul, in Ephesians 4, right, he, he exhorts us to maintain it, to strive after it, to pursue it. So to accomplish this goal, Paul taught us in Ephesians 4 that we're to have humility and gentleness, right, which is a selfless mindset where I'm not only considering my interests but the interests of others more important than myself. We also saw how he said there should be selfless care for one another that's displayed in patience and bearing with one another in love. And last week we began to see how James taught us that heart-controlling passions, if we allow them to become heart-controlling, we will have fights and quarrels and there will be victims as we sin against each other. And these heart-controlling passions, they will inevitably cause destruction if we are not striving to maintain this bond of peace. But we also saw, and have seen throughout Scripture, that as forgiven people, we must forgive. That our hearts must have a posture of readiness to forgive. This does not deny the pain or the emotional rawness that happens as a result of being sinned against. Right? And maybe that's what you are thinking right now. We acknowledge the hard work that it takes sometimes to prepare your heart and cultivate that ready posture to forgive. In reality, if you're struggling with these things, and it reminds us one thing, you're human. You're being asked to do a divine work as a human being. And so to feel pain and to feel like this is hard, it just is a reality. We are human, called to do this supernatural work of forgiveness. So everything we have been learning about maintaining, striving after this peace of God, we must collectively understand it is supernatural. You and I cannot produce this on our own, which means we have to be people of prayer. It means we have to be people of the word, the means of grace that God has given us to have the supernatural strength to walk out these type of things. Remember, Forgiveness is not denying sin. It is not removing consequences or forgetting that sin ever happened. Instead, our forgiveness is the heart posture of readiness to forgive someone in their repentance. We do this. How do we, how do we prepare this? We, we talked about it. We meditate on the glories of the gospel. Recognizing that we have been forgiven so much, therefore we have, are now able to forgive others. The, the freedom that awakens in our heart once we recognize the greatness of our forgiveness given to us by God himself. We also talked about how lament is a pivotal part of, of expressing our objections and our pain and our heartache unto God. 
Most of all, right, we begin to prepare the readiness of our hearts by releasing judgment to God and all bitterness that we may have inside. So if we have prepared, right, our heart's posture to forgive someone, yes, this can be challenging. And so I want to think on a few things that we want to consider as we move to this text where we will see reconciliation and what it begins to look like. But I want us to think of a few things first. As I was just meditating on this and and reading and praying for myself and for us, the body, as we're moving forward in this, I want us to consider three key things. How do I cultivate and prepare my heart to be ready to forgive? First thing is do not confuse, confuse the peace of God with inner peace. Do not confuse the peace of God with inner peace. And what I mean by that is do not think that you are maybe not saved if you're having emotions. If you're struggling through this, because that's the natural implication. We see, right, the text that say, as God has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And maybe you're saying, well, I just don't feel like I'm ready to forgive. I still got all these emotions and hatreds. There's a, there's a distinction you need to be able to make in this moment. Right? Not confusing the peace of God that is ours in Christ with an inner peace of saying, well, I'm just ready to move on right now and it's good to go. Listen to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. This is Paul exhorting the church in Philippi, and he says this, Rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I have thought and even heard others, right, that maybe you're in the midst of this season where we're learning what forgiveness and reconciliation look like, and you still have angst in your heart, emotions. And you read a text like this, and you're like, well, I should be at peace with God. We still are. This text is not telling you that the inner peace is the result of having peace with God. We will get there with time and with grace, but this side of eternity, still having our fallenness and and aspects of our humanity still a part of us, we will struggle with these things sometimes. I've said this to myself. I'm still angry, and I know I should forgive, but it's hard. So am I not saved? No, that's, that's not what the Bible is teaching you. It's not saying remove all pain, remove all emotion, and just act like nothing happened. We've already seen Last week, that it's not denying sin, it's not forgetting sin, and it's not removing of the consequences. The presence of anger and emotions when working towards a posture of readiness to forgive means you are human. And you're human. I cannot emphasize enough that we need to recognize what we are being called to do by God's word is a supernatural work. So the forgiveness we're called to in Scripture is not something you can produce yourself. So what does that mean for us? If maybe we're battling that that lack of an inner peace, there's still emotions and, and some level of frustration and maybe even anger. Well, it means one key concept that I want to help us to understand. It means you need to understand the biblical concept of future grace. Future grace. Write that term down. Future grace. Grace. You may be like, what is future grace? I've never heard of this term before. It's something I've learned from wonderful men who have taught and proclaimed the Word of God before me. It's in the Word of God itself. But future grace is this. 
It's the understanding that God will always provide the grace and resolve to accomplish the things he requires of us. Let me say that again. Future grace is an understanding that God will always provide the grace and resolve to accomplish the very thing he requires of it. Here's where we got to be careful. I can't forgive until I am no longer angry. Wrong. I know what the Bible says. I believe it to be true. And it's truth that drives me. And so even in, in my emotions and my rawness and in some level of frustration, I step out into that forgiveness knowing when my feet hit the ground, the grace of God will already be there. Because it's a supernatural work. If you're waiting till you're ready, you'll never be ready. we got to trust our maker who says, I will provide for you what I require of you. So we can't confuse waiting until I have inner peace with walking in obedience. This goes with our evangelism too, brothers and sisters. As I was meditating on this truth this week, it, I don't often feel the confidence and the boldness to go share the gospel with my neighbor or coworker. But after praying for strength, I go do it knowing God's promise, the grace will be there when I step into that moment. Future grace, we believe in it. The Bible declares it. We have been called to walk in obedience. Believing future grace of God will be present when we walk in obedience. So instead of waiting till the inner peace is perfect before we walk out what the Bible is calling us to walk out, We must be those who remember our sinfulness, who meditate on the glories of the gospel, who cry out to God and lament and pray for strength to do what he's calling us to do because we believe he is a giving God. And here's the funny thing. So I was thinking on this. My daughters, they love me dearly and Zion loves me dearly. But there is a hesitancy sometimes in them, or even my wife, to come and ask me for something. And this isn't because I'm a a guy who is angry all the time or a guy who's unwilling to hear. It's because my resources are limited. I only got so much that I can give. I only have so much time. I only have so much resources, whether it be money or a variety of things that I can give. And and out of the the beautiful care they have for me, they don't always come and ask when they are in need. This is not how our God is. He never runs short on grace. His resources never are without fullness for our crying out, I want to obey and I will step because I know you never run out. Listen to these two texts of Scripture. Philippians chapter 4 says this, And my God will supply every, which one? Every need of yours. How? According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? His piggy bank never runs out of grace to give for his people to walk in obedience. Future grace is always there. Or Romans 8.32. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. And then he asked this question, how will he not also 
with him, Christ, graciously give us what? All things. This should be so enlivening for us. These two texts are promises from God that there will be future grace for my people who walk in obedience, even if they don't feel like they can obey at the moment. Such good news. The cross didn't just atone for your sins. It purchased your obedience that you can walk in that obedience he requires of us. Now we must not, as a people though, confuse inner peace with the peace of God. But instead, by pressing into God and the means he's called to prepare our heart that is ready to forgive, trusting that when I step out in obedience, the future grace is already awaiting me because we have a God who is gracious to give. Secondly, as we're moving towards this movement of forgiveness and reconciliation, we must also not confuse righteous anger with vindictive hate. We must not confuse righteous anger with vindictive hate. Listen to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21 say this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as we're moving the posture of our hearts to the readiness to forgive someone who has sinned against us, we will inevitably experience some aspects of anger. And Romans 12 reminds us that this anger cannot spill over into vindictive hatred. Where you can no longer wish their good. You can no longer pray for their good. Instead, we have to what? Give that over to the Lord because he says, I will repay. That's my job. I'm good at it. Let me do this work. Vindictiveness or vengeance should not be allowed to dwell in our hearts, brothers and sisters. And if you're there, I pray that you would use this text and get on your face before God and say, Lord, I don't want to be vindictively hating anyone who has sinned against me, any offender. Instead, we also need to know that there is still space for righteous anger. What do we mean by righteous anger? It's the reality that you are tired of evil itself. You loathe the pain that sin causes in the world. This is why we've studied the gift of lament. This, this righteous anger, we, we use it to cry out to God in our objections. God, I know you say all things work together for my good, but it hurts right now. And I'm angry. And I don't want it to be vindictive hatred, so would you remind me? This is what we do. We know we have biblical frameworks for the difference in, in a righteous anger against evil and a vindictive hatred towards someone who maybe has sinned against me. 
and we do the gospel work, right? We're moving ourselves to where we have a posture of a heart ready to forgive. Maybe you're like, well, Pastor Josh, then how do I know if I'm ready to forgive? Because I feel like I still do hate them. The genuineness of our forgiveness is the freedom you have from vindictive hatred. Let me say that again. The genuineness of forgiveness is the freedom you have from vindictive hatred. What did Christ atone for on the cross? Every sin that we would ever occur. Every sin. Both those we have done in the past, those we will do today, and those we will do in the future. And so, therefore, we as God's people, if the people that we have been offended by will are walking in repentance, we, we prepare our hearts saying, Lord, that has been atoned for. And he or she, they will be judged by you and you alone. And so I release that I, and I, I'm free. I'm freed from feeling like I have to have vengeance or revenge. We must ask God to free our heart from vindictive hatred. How? Knowing the grace is there when we walk in it. So we've, we've seen two things. Two things. One, we have to not confuse the peace of God with inner peace, and we've got to not confuse righteous anger with vindictive hatred. This takes analyzing work. But one other thing we must understand is we must distinguish from our commitment towards one another from immediate restoration of full trust. We must distinguish our commitment towards one another with immediate restoration of full trust. Listen to Luke 17. We read this text last week. It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, what does it say? You must forgive him. So let's think. Let's, 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 let's do some, we're creating some great mental categories for ourselves. As we seek to be a church that walks according to how the Bible calls us to walk. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we have been knit together in a bond of peace, a bond of peace that is displayed in covenant membership inside a local body of Christ. This is why we make a big deal out of membership. Because what we're saying when we affirm someone's faith is you are now among us in this sphere of the bond of peace that God has given to us. This means we have a supernatural commitment to one another. One, it does not hide sin, nor does it leave sin unaddressed. Instead, in this bond of peace that we've been given, in the supernatural commitment that we have to one another, we move towards each other when sin is present. Why? Because Christ has given us the atonement that frees us to do this work, both to hear admonishment and to admit it when we are admonished. So as forgiven sinners, we are compelled, right? Chapter 5 said, by the love of Christ, that we no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who has died and has risen for our sake. This is the freedom, right? We've been given. And this is what we call you to as members of our church. To admonish sins in others' lives and to admit our own sins when we are admonished. And what gives us the ability to do it? The freedom of the bond of peace that we've been given that we believe Christ's death is sufficient. 
But even in that, we must be careful to distinguish that our commitment to each other also means we forgive and pursue one another, but it does not imply immediate restoration of all trust. We've, we've, we've discussed last week, right, the second level of forgiveness is dependent on the offender's repentance. We have the readiness of heart regardless of their repentance or not. We studied that in Luke and other passages of Scripture. We're always ready to forgive, and then when they are repentant, right, we present that forgiveness to them and begin to do the work of reconciliation. We immediately restore our love and commitment to them as a fellow heir of the kingdom, if they are repentant. Now go with me to 2 Corinthians. Let's stare at this text together for a little bit as we wrap our time up. If I wrap it up, don't, mean, don't think I'm about to be done. That was all introduction, guys, to the text. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's read it one more time and have it before us. Now, if anyone has caused you pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And he says, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Maybe you're not familiar with this book, 2 Corinthians, or, or Paul's multiple letters to the church at Corinth. This is a church that he established through his missionary endeavors. And was there for many years and established the local body with elders in place. And then he left to continue to go be God's apostle to the Gentiles. And he wrote back to them numerous times. Many people believe there's three, maybe four. We have two letters kept for us, preserved in God's Word. But if you remember 1 Corinthians, he got on to them. Why? Because they were allowing sin among them without saying anything to them. This man who had his father's wife. And it seems possibly that this is the same person referred to here. And so when they addressed that sin, they... they evidently admonished him and, and practiced some level of church discipline. And now his second letter, which is written a little bit later, he's reminding them, don't forget to do this also just as important work of when they are repentant to do what? Reaffirm your love and your commitment to them. That's what Paul is exhorting. Do you see that in the language there again? First look at five. I love it. He says, if anyone has caused pain, what did Paul just there acknowledge? There's going to be pain in the local body. And that we, we do it to, to one another sometimes. And he says, for such a one, speaking of the, it seems, of the same man who was admonished in 1 Corinthians of his sexual struggles. But look what it says there in verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is what? Enough. 
And so he's saying, guys, you've done the work. You've taken sin seriously, and you've admonished him. And it seems as if they practice some level of church discipline upon this man. But now he is a repentant man, and he's saying, now you need to do what? Verse 7, you should rather turn and what? Forgive and comfort so that there he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This is really amazing. We see Paul's exhortation with utmost scrutiny here. Paul's writing, right, to this church of, of one who they had rebuked in a sin and even practiced church discipline. Now it seems that this brother has repented of his sins and Paul is saying, turn and forgive and reaffirm your love for him. But what I want to really sink our teeth into is actually starting with verse 9. Look there with me. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient and pay attention to the next line in what? Everything. Paul says, this is why I wrote that I might test you to see if if you are truly the people of God and, and know whether you're obedient in everything. And here's something we need to consider and learn from. We as a church, we do, we strive to take sin seriously. That's something that we always charge one another with. We, we do, we practice church discipline and humility and gentleness according to Matthew 18. When a person is unrepentant, we walk through the commands that Christ has given us to discipline unrepentant sinners. We've done this as a body. And this is one of the ways God has designed for the church to display His glory and that He takes sin seriously. So what do we do? We take sin seriously. Yet, what Paul seems to be exhorting in this letter is that another way God displays His glory is when a church is reconciled with a repentant sinner. Do you see the the, the dual edge there? He says, brothers and sisters, you are a display of, of my glorious gospel. Church discipline and admonishment and rebukes, that's what my people do. Mixed and, mixed and married with encouragement and exhortations. And when someone is unrepented, my people are bold enough to say, this is not what a Christian acts like. And we walk through church discipline and remove them from the table. It is an affirmation of our trust that they are in Christ. But we cannot, brothers and sisters, we cannot forget the other side of the coin. That there's just as much a display of the glory of the gospel if there is a repentant sinner that we welcome them back in and reaffirm them with our love. This is just as much a display of the work of the gospel. And I would say it's the harder work. Because it means I have to put to death some emotions and some struggles and some inner things. Both of these are difficult. But brothers and sisters, we've studied Ephesians that we've been given this bond of peace, which means we're committed to one another. And we do so through admonishing sins when it is present. And we discipline a person when they are unrepentant. But brothers and sisters, we must understand the gravity of the gospel means we are also committed to restore love and reaffirm our commitment when they are repentant in their sin. We must do both. We must. 
the gravity of the gospel and our commitment to one another, it's seen in two ways, brothers and sisters. Our commitment to take sin seriously and pursue holiness and, and our commitment to take forgiveness serious. Both are necessary for a critical purpose. What was that purpose? Look at verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Wow. What in the world? Why why throw that in there, Paul? He he did something similar in Ephesians chapter 4, right? That we might not be fooled, be angry and do not sin, thereby fall into the designs of the devil. He says similar language here. What does that mean? Satan's designed to outwit the local body of Christ? Well, here's one thing we know. The Bible makes it very clear. Satan, the devil, whatever phrase you want to use for him, that he is a master deceiver and the father of lies. And from the beginning, Satan has been deceiving all of humanity in two key areas. First, do not believe God's word and do not trust his goodness. He's holding back something from you. It's what he did in the garden, right? And and he's repeated this pattern throughout the storyline of redemptive history in the Bible. And so if we are to consider this in light of what we know about the Corinthian church and the letters that Paul has written to them, it would seem that Satan tempts churches in these most vulnerable moments to not do one of the two things. Does it make sense? He's attaching. And he, and he doesn't say it on the church discipline part. He says it where? On the forgiveness part. Which is why I say I think this is the harder work Both are supernatural. Both are dependent on the future grace that the Lord will provide. But Satan is no fool. The bride of Christ, if not careful, it does tend to fall into one of two errors in this regard. One, it does not take sin seriously. Or, it doesn't take forgiveness seriously. And you've probably been in one or both of those churches at some point. Are there some churches that pursue holiness and, and become legalists because they forget that we are all forgiven sinners who need to forgive? Or, or the church that just washes everything away and covers everything without addressing unrepentance in the heart of believers? And the bond of peace that we've been collectively given, right, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, means that the call to maintain this bond of peace, that we take both seriously and thereby do not believe the lies of the devil that you can have one without the other. They are both necessary. And they are both God's means by which the church in its manifold wisdom is displaying the mystery of God. Reconciling sinners unto himself. Paul says this in Ephesians. And I want, to, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you in a few things in light of everything that we've been studying over the last month or so. First, I want to appeal to you this way. The forgiveness of a member who has sinned is a must. The forgiveness of a member who has sinned is a must as it relates to the readiness of our heart. We will always be ready to forgive, even if they're not repentant. That's the heart's posture, right? We're ready to forgive. How? Because we know how much we've been forgiven. And I'm using the, the gift of lament to cry out with my 
hearts that's finds objection and I'm making sure that I'm wrestling that I'm not confusing inner peace and righteous anger with vindictive hatred. This is a must for all of us in seasons when we are sinned against. And not just in the body, but also in our homes. Moms, dads, this is a great thing that we can begin to teach our children. Husbands, wives, this is a great thing that you need to practice in your home. You will be sinned against by your spouse. And we take both sins seriously, but what else do we take seriously? Forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. So all of us, we're collectively called, right, to have the readiness of heart to forgive anyone who has sinned against us. And when the offender repents of that sin, we must publicly forgive them and restore them by reaffirming our love for them. Now, a few things about this repentance. Sorry, my nose just got really itchy. Excuse me. I've heard this from some of you, and I was very thankful that you reminded me of these truths. You, you know, sometimes you, you know something to be true, but it's, it's like tucked way back there, often blocked. And then someone says it, you're like, oh, you're right. I know that, and I'm sorry. I, this is one of those that I think some of you have exhorted me in. But as it relates to repentance, we must not demand a person's repentance look like how we would repent. Explain what I mean by that. There's a particular way because of my personality and my makeup how I would repent. I cannot force that on someone else. But instead, we, I would encourage you, write this text down, 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. Go back and read this text. It's not going to be on the screen, but go back and read this text. This is how the Bible says we can know the difference in godly sorrow that leads to repentance and worldly sorrow that leads to death. But here's the, the three big things, the synopsis of what that text teaches us. The repentance, what do we look for to know if someone's repentance is genuine? They do not downplay their sin. They openly acknowledge it. They do not downplay their sin. They openly acknowledge it. It's the first big thing that Paul teaches us. Second thing, a repentance sinner does not reject accountability or the consequences of those sins. These are what we look for in a person. And then finally... The repentance center begins to bear fruit in the proper obedience attached to what was once their sin. If I used to steal, repentance is going to be displayed by the fact that I what? Stop stealing and start laboring. But I need you to understand something. Pay attention to me. The third one, the obedience that is displayed afterwards... This is one that will take time. If the first two are there, we're called to forgive, as Paul says. And then the restoration of that trust comes how? As they can continue to show they're bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. That restores the trust. Because we're already reaffirming our love. If they're acknowledging their sin and not downplaying it, if they're not pushing away consequences or accountability, we restore that love. And then as they continue to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance... We begin to restore trust, and more and more and more, we, we press into that. Does that make sense? I'll give you an example, just so that we can walk this out. Let's say someone in our church who is helping with finances, we find out that they have been stealing from their business. Someone approaches them, admonishes them, shows them from the Scripture why this is wrong and sinful, and they call them to repentance. 
And at first they do not repent, so they bring one or two brothers to them. And they don't repent, so they bring it to the church. And the church removes them not only from their financial responsibilities with us, but from the table. But then the Lord in his gracious work that promises us the spirit will not let sin continue in my people. He bears them repentance. Two or three months later, and they come back and, and we hear, they're acknowledging, they want accountability, they're not downplaying their sin. Does that mean when we reaffirm their love, they get right back on the financial team? No. Instead, through their proper obedience of no longer being a thief, but being honest with money and walking now over seasons of time, then we begin to restore that aspect of trust. Do you see the difference in the two things? And I think this is something extremely important that we must consider in light of our current situation. Because here's my second big thought. We must be careful not to demand additional hoops to be jumped through before we offer the first forgiveness. Does it make sense? If they're repentant and they're doing it according to Scripture, we do what? We reaffirm their love. Immediately. Knowing that in time, we'll see the bearing fruit in keeping with repentance that restores the trust. Does that make sense? I hope we're understanding that because that's so pivotal for us to, not just in our current context, but in, in life in general. We quickly forgive a repentant sinner by reaffirming our love for them. And then we slowly and steadily begin to reestablish real trust as they continue to bear fruit in keeping with their repentance. I do not wait to forgive until they have bared fruit in keeping with repentance. That's not, we don't do that. Another big thing I would encourage us to consider in, in, in this scenario and in any scenario, we might move quickly. I was telling my family and, and I, for some reason, I was saying to Ben and Brandy last night, like, I can literally get really mad one night, been out of shape about something, and then the Lord is so kind, and the next morning to just remind me of where I stand and how I got here, that I'm not angry anymore, and I can quickly go reaffirm my love for that person instantaneously. Not all of you are that way. And I'm not, I can't expect you to be like me, and you can't expect me, why aren't you more angry? We can't do that to each other. We've got to recognize we are a diversity of personalities, and the, the, the closer proximity to the sinfulness or the deeper the relationship with that person who has sinned against you, the longer it may take. We've got to be ensuring one constant thing for one another. We have to be making sure we are all constantly moving that ball of reconciliation forward. It's a supernatural work that God's doing through prayer, meditation on his word. must also be very considerate of others' emotions in this season. If you can see that they're just emotional with, while, while not slandering or having vindictive hatred, help them lament. Lament with them. But if you do see vindictive hatred, we need to be careful and warn them of that. Brothers and sisters, I hope we are seeing God's unbelievable beautiful pattern that he has set for us. He has not left us alone to figure out sin and hostility and struggle and fighting and quarreling and suffering on our own. 
He has given us clear instructions and he has promised us sufficient grace to walk through any and all situations. We must remember what Paul starts with at the beginning of this section. We are jars of clay, but we carry a beautiful treasure. For we have been reconciled to our maker through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And we are called not to be outwitted by Satan and his schemes. We will not only take sin seriously and not forgiveness. We will take both seriously. Why? Because the grace of God is sufficient for us to be able to do both sides of those things. And we've seen, right, that forgiveness is a must within our own heart. We must be ready to forgive. And that when that brother or sister or offender has repented, we reaffirm our love for them while also recognizing that there takes time to restore the fullness of trust. I hope y'all can make those categories in your brain. They're so important for us to grapple with. I want to encourage you not to confuse inner peace with the peace of God. I want to encourage you not to confuse righteous anger with vindictive hatred. But I want to plead with you, the body of Christ here and those maybe who are guests with us, that if you are in conflict or in situations where sin has been present, you need to meditate on the forgiveness that you've been given. Cry out to God a lament as an expression of your objections. But you must move forward when someone is repentant with forgiving hearts. And we must not demand that repentance look like I think it should look, but is it in line with Scripture? In accordance with 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Another text. And we must remind ourselves that reconciliation, the reaffirmation of love, does not mean immediate restoration of all trust. That takes varying amounts of time for each and every one of us. But above all is, remember this. Future grace is available for us to walk in obedience, no matter where you stand in this situation. But we must obey. May his glory be upon us. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.